it is a remote place. So people who get um, make the move to here are maybe a little more independent and uh, feel like they can handle stuff. And that's why we have strong women characters up here um, and in, on a really equal footing. And it's just something that you can never un, undo. When, you, when you've seen a scene that's pretty dramatic, um, it's hard to you know, take the reel back and unsee things. hey Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your premier destination for great conversations with the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Sean Zimmerman-Wall. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by 10 Barrel Brewing, Drink Beer Outside, and Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Well, well, well. The season is underway, and for most folks out there, you're all pretty excited to be sliding around on snow, wrapping it up through the mountains with your friends, or working in a place that brings you joy. I'm excited to be back for a second season, and that Caleb thought I was entertaining enough to keep on the team. This season ahead will no doubt be full of challenges and the occasional setback, but if we can maintain our growth mindsets and keep striving for excellence, it is sure to be a formative experience in our lives. Snow has a transformative effect on the spirit, and whatever way you enjoy the many splendors it brings, be sure to take some time to just stay present and mindful of the situations and people you encounter. After all the education an avalanche student receives, the big question remains, where should I go? Long gone are the days of barroom napkins and Facebook advice. It's our mission here at Beacon Guidebooks to create decision-making tools for backcountry skiers to present terrain information in a professional, responsible, and ultimately reliable way. Our maps, atlases, and app give every skier the tools to be successful, safe, and smart. For today's show, I'm catching up with one of my favorite avalanchistas, Eva Litosoa. Eva and I caught up just as the season was beginning and in between her annual trainings and SAW conference appearances. She is a seasoned practitioner and is widely recognized as a relationship builder and community connector. She does this through her role as the American Avalanche Association Education Chair, Associate Professor of Outdoor Studies at Alaska Pacific University, SAR team member and dog handler, Alaska Avalanche School Senior Instructor, and she's even been known to come and help me out on the airy side of things from time to time. I've always enjoyed working alongside her, and each time we interact, I find a morsel of wisdom that I can use in my future endeavors. If you ever get the chance to take a course or a class from this incredible woman, do so. Your mind and your body will be challenged as she enlists her wealth of experience and profound knowledge to meet learning objectives in some of the most memorable outdoor menus the continent has to offer. Here we go, lifting off with Ava. Well, I'd like to welcome my guest today, Ava Lutoso, coming to us from 
Great White North in Alaska. Ava, welcome to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Well, thanks, Sean. It's a pleasure to talk with you this early October when we I've already gotten two ski days in and it's not even October 15th. So it's great to chime in from Alaska. Excellent. How are conditions in your neck of the woods right now? You know, it is early season, but we got a bunch of wet snow already up on the mountains and it seems to be setting up for actually a really good base um, because it came with a bang. So we are not talking about a few inches. We have almost a meter of snow in the starting zones already and people are out skiing. Um, so that's always a good sign. I might, I think the crowds are here to stay uh, from the pandemic winter. So we'll see how crowded it gets in the backcountry. And on that note, too, we already had like avalanche incidents here, too, in Alaska. We had three hunters fell off the alpine starting zones when they're looking for sheep. Um, and they got picked up by army earlier this week. And then uh, we also had a hiker totally like un unknowingly got avalanched and um, they had no no avalanche gear of any sorts, but luckily her foot was sticking out still. So the partner was able to unbury them. But it does seem like, you know, hunters and hikers are already getting into trouble while skiers are still, you know, uh, uh, dusting off their transceivers or whatnot. Right. Yeah. I read about those respective incidents and it was quite interesting to see, uh, you know, how soon these events are already starting to happen. Um, but like you said, the, the crowds are here to stay. So we'll see how they go. And, you know, it's not just relegated to the ski and snowboard and snow machine community. It's those other outdoor enthusiasts that maybe don't have avalanches on their radar all the time. Yeah. I think like in Alaska avalanche terrain is when you get out of out of your door, there are mountainous terrain everywhere and snow season is everywhere. So um, I think there is that idea of public outreach is important, at least in states like Alaska, beyond just the really passionate backcountry recreationists. Well, thanks for that little bit of a current update. As you mentioned, we're talking here in just about middle October. Uh, but what we'd like to do as we get in here is learn a little bit more about you and maybe you could tell the audience about uh, who you are, where you're from, what keeps you here in this industry and um, what you're currently excited about. Yeah, well, um, I'm originally from Finland, as you can hear from my speech. It's not really a Boston accent. And um, obviously, I grew up um, on skis, on cross-country skis. I mean, all the Nordic countries, people grow on skis, but it wasn't really until uh, I was a teenager when I got really hooked on downhill skiing and backcountry skiing followed fairly after that. And um, I ended up actually spending a, a exchange year from grad school in Western Washington University in 94, 95. And that was spectacular. I'd never skied terrain like that. I hadn't seen big trees like that. And it was one of those uh, epic snow seasons. So it wasn't that hard to see that I was skipping a lot of school to go to ski Mount Baker. So um it wasn't like straight aid semester, but a lot of life learning. And um, I also did a lot of outdoor education coursework at the time in Western Washington University. So it kind of gave me this trajectory where I realized that um, that was something that I wanted to do for a living. I really wanted to have a profession that would take me outdoors. And um, 
I did end up going back to University of Helsinki to finish my degree. I have a master's in environmental science, uh, but I had already made up my mind and I came back to the U.S. to uh, do a NOLS instructor course. And that was really, truly what I wanted to do, be on the mountains on extended periods of time. And I tracked quite a few years with Knowles, um, mostly teaching out of Pacific Northwest on the mountains, in the Cascades a lot of time, but also in the coast range on the north side of the border. Um, also climbed a lot rock climbing, um, but that's a little different than the avalanche industry work. Um, and then in 99, I actually moved to Eagle County, Colorado. Um, uh, my husband um, went to paramedic school um, in Colorado, and we ended up moving to Eagle County. And I ended up um, getting a job with Vail Ski Resort. Uh, I showed up in town, and I was like, I want a ski patrol. And they were like, laughed at me and said, well, the tryouts were in April, uh, so you're only like six months late. But um, I ended up uh, getting hired in a guest services department, um, and uh, and then Lucky for me, not lucky for some others, uh, there were enough patrollers that injured themselves early season, and I was a mid-season hire for ski patrol that year. And that was my first true avalanche uh, professional job. And I mean, obviously, in a ski area like Vail, most of it is still guest service or medical services for the for the customers, but... Um, there was just plenty of boots on the ground on the skis every day, seeing what happens um, with the snow day in, day out. And uh, that was really, uh, along with my monitoring coursework in, in uh, glaciated ranges, um, ski patrolling was really kind of part that got me really engulfed in the idea that what is snow doing on these slopes and how can we do things that we love without getting totally scared um and i do have to say like right now in alaska i mostly do backcountry skiing but when i was in colorado i was really afraid to go skiing because all i knew is that there are just facets on the ground and snowpack is super sketchy and um yeah i wish i'd done more actually now that i look back um but ski patrolling did give me a lot of um good routines um with being on the snow. Absolutely. And that's always been something that's very close to my heart too, being a, a longtime patroller. And I find it to be a very good foundation for work in this industry. Um, it gives you access to a lot of different people to help you hone your craft and kind of opens your eyes to kind of what the other possibilities are, are out there. But it sounds like your eyes were opened uh, to the possibilities out there with some of the coursework you were doing and things like that. And so the ability to go from that like continental snowpack to then some of these greater ranges, that was probably also really uh, formative for you. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. So I, I moved to Alaska from Colorado in 2004 and um, I got um, we moved up here for my husband's job. He got a job with Anchorage Fire Department. He's a paramedic. And, and I um, I fortunately got a job with Alaska Pacific University, which is a small private liberal Arts College um, that's currently really focusing on being Alaska Native serving um, university um, that operates on Denaina lands here in Anchorage. Um, and I've been with them now 17 years. But I do remember like when I moved over here and uh, Anchorage is kind of 
a unique little place, not little place. I mean, we have 250,000 people living here, but it is right on the mountains. Like the, we call it front range. The two Gush mountains are right there and they are up to, you know, 5,000 feet here that we can see. And uh, it was wonderful moving here and just hiking on these mountains. But then when the winter came and the first snow started dumping on the mountains, you just see these white mounds everywhere. And I was like, oh my God, there's all the skiing to be had. And um, I was actually teaching my first, first snow science course at APU. And the course leader was Nancy Pfeiffer, who's a longtime avalanche professional. I consider her one of my mentors because she took me under her wing when I moved to Alaska and just showed me the ropes. And, um, and I would be like so excited. I'd call her up. Uh, she lives in Palmer. And I called her up. I'm like, Nancy, Nancy, like, look at all the, all the snow on the mountains here. And she would be just like telling me like, oh, oh yeah, they're good right now, but wait until the wind comes. And sure enough, before I got my skis up there, all the starting zones were bare and all the snows were like huge wind slabs on the other side of the ridge line. And I missed my opportunity, you know, but uh, Anchorage is a really quite uh, fantastic place for people <laughs> who are interested in snow because I have three different kinds of snow climates uh, within an hour drive of my house. So obviously I got really excited that uh, when I moved to Alaska and I got to see all these things. So like my front range reminds me more of the Colorado snowpack. It's, it's more shallow and always fastest at the bottom and winds up at the top. But if I go an hour south to turn again, it's more of a maritime, um, Arctic maritime climate. So it's a lot of snow, big trees, usually fairly stable snowback with bunch of bunch of its own little problems like glide cracks. Like just yesterday, I went to up to one of the weather stations with Wendy Wagner, who is the Chugach Avalanche Center director, and we went to putz it around with one of the one of the forest, uh, weather stations, and there were like glide cracks freaking everywhere. There are like hundreds of glide cracks everywhere, and it's just like. This is what we have here. It's like all these unique things that you might not see elsewhere. And that makes me excited to look at the snow. And then if I go an hour north, I'll be at the Hatcher Pass. And that's just uh, kind of like intermountain snowpack. It's more than what we have in the front range, but it's colder. It has a lot of facets, a lot of like interesting um, snow structure in there. So it's just really quite a quite a phenomenal place to be and teach about snow and research snow as well. What an incredible laboratory to have right there, uh, just out your door and to have such uh, venerable people that have been there and pioneered the industry there, but also still continue to be engaged. And you spoke about uh, your previous mentors or your existing colleagues that I'm sure that you exchange mentorship, uh, people like Wendy. And I know you've talked about that topic in the past. Um, for our listeners out there, if you want to hear some of the work Ava's done around it, I would check out the Utah Avalanche Center's podcast from 2019, where she sat down with Drew Hardesty and Olive Johnston Bloom to discuss uh, the project that they worked on. You can also check that out in the Avalanche Review from those corresponding years. So, Ava, on top of that, do you have anything else to add about kind of your background or what's keeping you excited up there in AK? Um. Yeah, I guess like I like the avalanche community. It was just I was just reminded of that now that it's the beginning of a new season where um, 
you know, there's emails and text messages and photos circling around. And um, I think that's one of the um, neatest things about living in a place like Anchorage or, you know, a lot of Kurdwood people. Um, because avalanche industry is quite small, but uh, it's small, but it's very lively. And and um, you get to know the people that are within that community fairly well. So that is one of the things that makes me really excited to be part of this world and um, have the conversations with people um, that are interested in these same things than I am. Excellent. And your uh, interests are are even more varied than what we've discussed here. And, and you've been able to uh, incorporate a lot of the work you do with the university into research projects. And you've worked on in the greater ranges. I know you do a lot of coursework where you end up taking a week off, or sorry, a month off to go out into the Alaska range and spend time in the mountains with your students. So those experiences must also be quite uh, formative in your ascension as a professional and also just a human in the mountains. Yeah, I consider myself, I'm like relational individual. So I um, really enjoy uh, interacting with uh, people. And that's probably why I like to be a teacher because I want to, um, I want to interact with students and see where they're going to, going to go. And we have a little snow science concentration at APU where I've seen the people um, some of them show up and they don't really have that much feel for the snow, but then after they've been our, our university for four years and they graduate and they go into the world of employment and they are now they're either guiding or a lot of ski patrollers and some people are also in forecasting positions. So, um, it just need to have that, um, you know, having that long-term relationship with individuals and see when, how they change from A to B. And then obviously for me, when I'm working with students, like you were referring to my uh, our students to undergraduate thesis work um, projects. And I've done like, I've done all kinds of snow science related projects with small scale with them, anything from, um, I've, I've done a lot of research actually on avalanche dog performance in small scale. I'm an avalanche dog hander um, to decision making for mountain guides. And, and then um, just this, this year, I have a student who is working on retrospectively uh, interviewing uh, people about last year's skiing. Like how, did they, how, how was their experience uh, as a backcountry skier last year in Alaska? Uh, with the pandemic and and the crowds so it's just interesting i um i'm just very curious person and i love to hear what other people are thinking about topics and uh, having those interest in uh, discussions with people about themes that they are um, engaging and i just really enjoy that i can always count on you uh, as a good partner in discussion and thought partner when uh, I need to bounce some ideas around. So I can, I can tell you have that intellectual curiosity, uh, not only for your own work, but how it fits into the greater community. And, and the community is something I wanted us to kind of gravitate our discussion towards, since it was something um, that was of, of chief interest to you. And this idea of you, you live in a, a community that's uh, not 
as large as some of the communities down here, but still very tight knit in a lot of ways, but maybe also counterintuitively, it's really geographically dispersed across a pretty large area too. If you like get down into Southeast Alaska and some of the Chugosh range and just the sheer scale of how big Alaska is. Um, if, if folks have never been there, it's, it, you, you say you've got these three snow climates, but when you look at them across the map, you're like, wow, that's actually a lot of driving <laughs> to get there. <laughs> right. Like I was just talking about one hour within my drive distance. But if you if we're now looking at the greater Alaska, I mean, the uh, state of Alaska is the largest, sorry, Texas. And uh, we have most we have like most ranges. We have 13 mountain ranges within the state. And uh, but we have so little population that it's easier to think about it in these population centers. Um, so and a lot of it has actually recognition uh, throughout the whole backcountry community, even if you go to Europe, because I bet every person who is on skis will know Valdez. It has a brand recognition itself. So if you go to that part of the Chugach range, you'll get to ski. Um, the beautiful mountainous terrain of Valdez, where we have a lot of heli ski guide companies and and people go um, backcountry <laughs> trips there, just like they would go to Rogers Pass in Canada. You know, it has quite a bit of uh, a lot of people want to go to Thompson Pass to to ski it up. And then we have Haynes has another really it's another crazy little Alaska town that has a really big. Uh, percentage of um, people who get their living uh, or are really uh, intertwined with uh, with the avalanche industry, both forecasters and guides. And then, um, obviously, um, we have the Southeast Alaska, the whole Juno team, and um, they have also really stellar and in, uh, intricate, very skilled. Um, community of avalanche professionals in Juneau. So um, yeah, Alaska is kind of interesting place. And another that's curious about Alaska, um, uh, we have a lot of women in the industry leaders. Um, we just we just had a little bit of turnover at the Chugach Avalanche Center. Um, but for a while it was like a three-woman uh, team doing the forecasting uh, at the Chugach. And uh, and same, like, um, I work a lot as a senior avalanche educator uh, for Alaska Avalanche School. And uh, on the helm of that institution is uh, a female. And I know several, I, I have a lot of uh, respected avalanche professionals from um, from Jill Fredson to Nancy Pfeiffer to on and on on women who have been here and just kind of, being there very equal staged with men. And, and that's that I think it has to do with the frontier spirit a little bit, you know, people who come to Alaska, it's far away and people come in here and it's not like you should, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a modern city, but I think there is still this idea that it is a remote place. So people who get, um, make the move to here are maybe a little more independent and, uh, feel like they can handle stuff and that's why we have strong women characters up here um, and they're in, on a really equal footing um, and I enjoy that because I'm from Finland and 
the Nordic countries are also very well known from uh, gender neutral upbringing. Uh, for example, in my language, uh, my my mother tongue, we don't have gender at all. And so, if I actually that's a public service announcement that if I use he or she wrong, it's not that I'm confused about gender. It's just that um, I have to relearn to use the language where I'm always relating people according to their gender. And that's not how I grew up. So I sometimes make silly mistakes like that. Well, it's quite a different paradigm. And, uh, and thank you kind of for relating that, uh, that difference, not only in the culture between your home country and, and where you're now located, but also just in the, the differences in the way that uh, industry professionals have developed in Alaska. I think that your, uh, your point about the frontier spirit is something I hadn't considered before. Um, and so thanks for sharing that. Uh, while we're on the topic of Finland, um, I wondered if you might compare your snowpack here or in AK to where you were used to recreating there for our listeners who maybe aren't that familiar with your home country. Yeah. So, um, Finland, uh, is, uh, uh, I, I've never actually been to Minnesota besides the airport, but a lot of people say that Finland is like Minnesota. So we have a lot of lakes and a lot of trees, but not that many mountains, except when you go further north, actually, uh, there are these really, there is an old mountain range that mostly now grind down with ice ages. So they're just these little round humps that don't get very high in elevation. Uh, uh, but there is some nice backcountry skiing um, in. Finland and uh, but it's even better when you go across the border um, to the true Scandinavian crest either in uh, northern Sweden or northern Norway and that's where most of the Finnish people do their hardcore backcountry skiing but there is a there is nice fjell skiing um, in northern Finland and there is actually like a pretty uh, lively and upcoming avalanche professional community even in Finland it might be small in volume, but um, they are, um, you know, well-trained and um, have a lot of experience um, in other mountain ranges besides just the Finnish terrain. And um, also I should mention that, that most of the European backcountry skiers also do their time in the Alps um, to go skiing. So um, that's also where a lot of folks uh, either get their get their training or get spanked either way you know sometimes it's hard when you come from the flat country and you you go to the mountains you don't always know what's up very true thanks for sharing that little bit of extra information uh helps us um, visualize that area a little bit better i think many people lump the nordic countries sometimes together and think that they all look like sweden so it's it's good to <laughs> know how the differences might be there for the skier crowd um, and I'm sure that also, like you were saying, there's kind of a burgeoning um, avalanche community starting to develop there. And uh, so I, I want to kind of gravitate back towards that uh, sense of community that you've established with your peers there in Alaska and elsewhere. Um, and just kind of ask you about like this sense of community up there, what you've mm -hmm. seen on the lower 48 when you've come down here. Um, and, and where are we at? What's uh, What are some of the observations you've made about our community and our culture and things that maybe yeah. we're not all paying that close attention to that we should be. 
Right. Well, I'm going to start close from home. So like, like I said, I think best part of participating in this type of work is the, the community and the teams. And um, one of the routines or rituals, weekly rituals that I look forward to here in Alaska, in Anchorage, uh, for the winter season is uh, we call them stability meetings. And uh, it's this uh, Friday morning meeting that Chugach Avalanche Center is hosting, uh, where mostly Girdwood Avalanche professionals just kind of show up for a weekly meeting. And it's across organizations. So there is often uh, not just the Forest Service forecasters, but there is Alaska Snow Safety Team, Two catch powder guides, um, forecasting team. Um, there's often representatives from uh, Alaska DOT or Alaska Railroad because they're all operating over there. And even um, oddballs like Two Gadget Electric, which is an electrical company that's also doing some of the um, infrastructure um, forecasting uh, on the same corridors. And it's just like, and then avalanche educators uh, like myself sometimes sit in because that's the best way for me to get my cheat sheet on before I teach a pro one or pro two, like what's actually going on. And so, so why I bring this up is because it feels like a true sense of community because there's information sharing within that. Um, and uh, people are collaborating about topics and kind of like uh, calibrating um, are the snow conditions similar or different throughout the the region? And um, so that's information sharing. But what I really like about this community is that uh, one of the questions that they always bring up is, um, did we blow any forecasts? And it's this safe community of professionals that provide safety information for recreationists, people who drive Seward Highway or ski the resort. Um, but they all feel like they're in a place as a community where can, they can also talk about failures. And, um, and it's, it's really neat. It's not like it happens all the time, right? But the idea is that these professionals feel so um, uh, respected among themselves and they... Um, can talk about things that they don't know answers for. Um, I always, I always remember when I was doing my research with about the mentorship, and Olaf and I got to uh, interview Dave Hamry, who is a like institution within this community, and uh, he was always saying that uh, if somebody would ask him a question. Uh, he wouldn't mind saying that, no, I don't know answer to that question. What do you think? And um, I think that's part of, part of the community features that makes it um, flourish and grow is when you have a bunch of experts in the room and they can share that, gosh, I blew that day's forecast or where did that all snow came from? Or they're like, look at all those glides on the North Face. Um, I don't know what to do about them. What do you guys think? And um, it's just, that's what I enjoy about the community, that it should be safe, but like a um, vibrant place where people feel like they can share what they have in their mind, but also ask questions uh, without, you know, 
being laughed at or wonder like, oh my gosh, can he actually be a forecaster because he had that question? Um, so it's like the self-learning community. That's really interesting for me um, because it takes a village. It's not, it's not that simple. Everything is super complex and uh, people should collaborate because we don't all have understandings. Like understanding of snow is so um, spatial for all of us. So if we're trying to understand it as a dynamic medium, we should ask everybody what's going on so that our collaborative understanding of it is better. Um, yeah. Those are all really good tenets of what make a strong community. And um, being relatively young in this industry, I'm going on 15 years. Um, I was fortunate enough to where those threads were already starting to be woven in to my community when I became a practitioner. Um, and I'm sure that there are various strengths in different parts of the world and different parts of our country. And Alaska is a country unto itself, as we've illustrated mm -hmm. here today. Um, but I'm, I'm really uh, glad to hear that you all have found this mechanism to be able to do that and create this and, and, and also be a bit of a role model, too, for maybe organizations or cultures of organizations in geographic areas that can look at uh, things that are working well. Um, those stability meetings sound like they could be pretty entertaining. Oh yeah, there is laughter in there. There's a lot of lot of good stories shared. It's great, um, and that's I think part of it because I, I find that people who are in this industry, uh, people are really passionate. I think like if you'd have to find like one characteristic about the individuals, like people are passionate, and so what that means that um, people love their jobs regardless of pay, regardless of benefits that they most likely are not getting or also regardless of stress that that job puts on you um, you kind of like live with it with humor sometimes you know that's one of the um, one of the coping mechanisms right is like making fun of it that you hardly make your ends meet but you know let's have a beer and talk about it in the bar um, another thing that characterizes the community is obviously that people are really hard workers um, I'm always amazed. I, I I sit in a really nice position because I'm actually like faculty. I have like a real job. I have office with a window and I have a paycheck that comes to my account, you know, regularly, regardless of how many contracts I get. Um, but I think um, that's a little bit of problematic that we have these people who are so passionate about avalanches and skiing or uh, guiding um, that they are willing to continue on working seasonal jobs with really long hours, um, sometimes 24 seven for periods of time. I know a lot of like DOT forecasting teams, like they don't really get a break. If the mother nature has a cycle going on, um, there's no such thing that I'm tired. Um, can I take a time out? And I think the same thing is on, on guiding industry when the conditions are on, um, the hops time is ticking and the clients want to um, ski. So there is that pressure of like, we'll just keep on going, even though you might have been doing it for two weeks on end. Um, but there is this kind of like external pressure that makes you uh, do it. And I think um, uh, maybe the employment culture is getting a little better, um, but I'm not sure about that. I think a lot of, 
lot of folks are so into their jobs in a way that they go through this rigor that everybody else would be like, what? Like, I'm really, really, like, for the hours that I'm working, I'm getting minimum wage. Um, and the risks that I'm taking with my job are tremendous. So, uh, you know, I think we should pay avalanche workers better overall. And we all should have health insurance and maybe even retirement benefit. But here I go again, Sean. I, the fin, fin in me is rearing its ugly head about, um, you know, how we can take care of people um, regardless of their <laughs> um, employer. Absolutely. And in the absence at times of employer initiatives to either pay more or produce benefits for individuals, it does become incumbent on members of the community to recognize what's happening uh, to their colleagues and to acknowledge the stress that we're all collectively under in our respective sectors. And many of us are also in multiple sectors. We may be in education, we may be in ski patrol and guiding or search and rescue is something we haven't talked a lot about yet. Um, but there, mm -hmm. all of these community members are so interwoven and everybody has exposure to different stressors. Uh, somebody on a SAR team will be exposed to more of those stressors that are really about the uh, traumatic events they're responding to and, and how that's uh, impacting the, the victims and the team of rescuers. And then you have the folks who are dealing with forecasting for infrastructure, like the railway you mentioned. That amount of decision-making fatigue that takes place there can't be understated, I don't believe. And these cumulative stressors, as we're now learning more and more about through the research that's been uh, been put out there, and specifically, you know, Laura McGladry has, has spoken on this very podcast about that and in any, many other places, that uh, these stress injuries start to take a hold of us and uh, really impact our wellness. So it, it does become almost incumbent on us as practitioners to be knowledgeable about this stuff. Um, unfortunately, folks from other industries are seeing that it's something to be studied in our industry. So I wondered if you have any more thoughts on that and like kind of uh, industry wellness or uh, is our culture changing? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned Laura McGladry because obviously she and her um, collaborators are the pioneers in this work and pretty much made the stress injury awareness uh, um, rise across the board. And um, I'm I'm a member of Alaska Mountain Rescue Group currently and do SAR work um, through them. Uh, mostly as an avalanche advisor, but also doing other line of work with them. And but so Laura McGladry just uh, gave us a, did a workshop here, regional workshop in Alaska, and just uh, talking about this idea that we just all have to be aware on an individual um, state of of stress that we are under, as well as as a team. And I mean, I'm not going to go into her specialty, but like, I think we all should review every season, you know, what is it for individual, what is for our team, whatever your team is that you're working with. 
Um, I also know that Mel Cody from Alaska Island School has been working a lot of initiative to um, get the professional avalanche training in the U.S. Um, include parts of this um, as part of a curriculum because it is all about the, a lot of prevention will happen if we are all aware that this is coming. And I, um, so I've been in SAR work uh, for quite a while. I mean, it started already being a pro patroller in Vail, um, just, you know, dealing with medical issues or some, some avalanche uh, rescues and uh, some lost parties um, outside of the, uh, in the, in the side country. Um, but then when I came to Alaska, I immediately joined um, search and rescue with, as a dog handler, because that's what I wanted, uh, wanted to do. And, and um, I have now a retired avalanche dog, Sisu. She's 14 and a half years old, and she's pretty much like sitting on the couch eating bonbons and just remembering good, good old golden days. But um, uh, we had a pretty legit career with her, both for wilderness and avalanche missions. And um, and so uh, when, when I first started Star Work, it was just all really, really exciting. And I enjoyed that part of giving back to the community. I felt like I had the right skill set. Uh, I enjoyed working with the dog. Uh, we're a pretty specialized team. So it, it seemed really neat to be able to use that um, skill set to go help. And Alaska, is, it's pretty exciting too, because we would sometimes take plane, boat, and machine and a snowmobile to get to a place um, and a lot of remote work uh, that we got to do. Um, one of my favorite missions will show you the case. Like there was in 2012, um, there was uh, five Japanese climbers that got avalanched off while they were descending on West Buttress route on Denali. And the avalanche happened um, pretty much like late evening, early night uh, at 11,000 foot camp. And one of the climbers actually climbed out, uh, survived this event and walked to the base camp to alert uh, the rangers who started the rescue mission. And um, I was alerted and I, 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 I'm still, I think the only dog team, dog handler team that has worked on Denali on a federal lands, but they, um, we drove to Talkeetna, got on the fixed plane to get dropped off to the base camp where the park service helicopter will pick us up and then take us to the 11 camp. And, you know, that's like kind of like actual pretty normal um, route for Alaskan backcountry rescues. Is there's a lot of, a lot of moving parts for transportation. At any rate, um, you know, it, it's, it's pretty special to be able to give back to a community like that. We, we flew up to 11. We, I bet we worked two hours max. We, um, we, my dog worked the debris field and we cleared it that there are no, no Japanese climbers in this debris field. And, um, the conclusion is that they, they they were presumed dead in a crevasse above where the debris field was. So that's if somebody's waiting for the punchline, that's that. But um, you know, it's um, that kind of missions that make you want to do this work because it's very unique. You'll get to do this time sensitive uh, community service with your dog. That's even more fun, and uh, and. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting work. That's why you want to do that. There is that part of it. 
it makes you feel special with your skill set and giving back. And um, side note, uh, if anybody of you think, do dogs get altitude sickness? Yes, they do. My dog worked fine for two hours coming from the sea level, but when I gave her water, her tongue was all blue. And uh, and yeah, anyways, and I, I have talked about this of some dog handlers at Rainier who had confirmed the same thing, that their dogs do fine in altitude, but their tongues go blue. Anyways, so, but that, that kind of missions are like super awesome. They just make you feel good about your work and being available. Um, but throughout these years of SAR work, um, there is this dark side to all of this. It's not all just like flying into place in helicopters and, and coming back home with the smile on your face. Um, especially this winter, uh, uh, cumulatively we're on two different avalanche incidents um, as an AMRG member um, that had a big impact on me. And uh, the first one was in early February. Um, there were three climbers who were climbing this bare mountain and um, it was a, it's a steep core route and um, nobody really witnessed this. So it's hard to tell what happened, but regardless, um, these uh, three climbers um, got into avalanche and they got buried by the debris. And um, I was there as a party who um, extricated them and, and did the um, accident report. Um, but uh, during that mission, like the extrication work was fairly difficult. Um, um, there was um, trauma involved and um, it was sad for me as a climber to see that. Um, and it was like first time where I felt like even at the site, I felt uh, a little bit at unease. And then, um, but it was fine because we were, were able to give closure to the families and the friends and climbers um, uh, within the Alaska community. And then about a month and a half later, we had that really highly pop, uh, published uh, helicopter crash where uh, the pilot and two heli guides and uh, and three clients um, were in a helicopter crash. And on that specific incident, I ended up being an avalanche advisor where uh, I was flown in a helicopter with two other um, members of the team uh, to take a look at the scene and define is it safe for um, our teams to go in and um, extricate the bodies. Um, and, uh, and, and during this mission, I, I got alerted that um, I know really well one of the guides who, who got killed, Sean McManamy, and he went to my program. He was my student and um, he helped me. He was actually adjunct with a few of the courses that, that so he was co-instructing with me and I saw him grow into this uh, really competent and capable um, guide. He guided both on Denali and he guided in the heli industry. And I also know really well Sean's wife, Caitlin, um, who was also at APU a student and they met while they were at school and then had a life together after that. And so when I was like, 
on the helicopter doing my job as an avalanche advisor, uh, of course, I'm thinking about uh, that this is where now Sean is gone, Sean is down there. And I just felt so um, relieved um, that I did not need to be part of the team who was on the ground. I was just able to do my specific expert job of um, calling the shots of scene safety and giving guidance on the low, uh, landing zones. Uh, but then I didn't have to go there to see it. Because according to Laura McGladry's research, uh, personal relationship with the subjects um, is a really tough thing. And um, uh, all these years of avalanche education and teaching at the university, uh, of course, I've had incidents where um, I've had several few students uh, diet in a climbing accidents. Uh, but this was really a first time um, that was so close to me to think that I knew the person um, who were picking up. And, um, and uh, I was really sad about it for many reasons, of course. Like, and it's, uh, this specific in, uh, incident has impacted all of us because I told you the community is so small. Like everybody knew harms or or Sean or both, uh, or, or they knew the pilot or they flown with the pilot. So it's just like the intertwined uh, community or, you know, the other guides who they were working with or knew some sort of logistical um, connection with them. And um, these things are really hard uh, for the community because it's something that's kind of out of ordinary. Uh, Here's where I'm talking about the whole idea of like working so hard and taking the risk every day. Um, I mean, people who do heli guiding, they get into the helicopter every day. We all know flying in helicopters is inherently dangerous, as is backcountry skiing or heli skiing. So it's not like we don't know that the risks exist, um, but when it actually happens, uh, it is still eye opening. And I've talked with many heli guides who are like, they've actually never seen a helicopter crash, for example. And it's just something that you can never un undo. When, you, when you've seen a scene that's pretty dramatic, um, it's hard to, you know, take the reel back and unsee things. So that's the hardest part, um, is seeing things that you can take back. And if I can I conclude one more episode here? So, um, so this May, I, this last May. So the first climbing accident was in February. The helicopter crash was in March. Um, and then in May, the whole month of May, I spent on an expedition in Alaska range. And I was so excited. I was, um, it was an all-female crew, which has never happened in my career. I've been an outdoor educator for a long time. And um, we're in Alaska range, um, mostly in the Ruth Gorge area and different globes of the glacier. And uh, we had to put a cache in in one place uh, in order to make the things move because we had a three weeks worth of um, gear and food with us. So we had made a cache and then it was time to pick up the cache. And we skied to the cache and started burying it. 
And suddenly I got this, this like huge flashback. I mean, I knew in my head that it's just the food bag, blue nylon food bag that's under three feet of snow. But when we were shoveling it out, uh, all I could th- see was the people that I had unburied in February and the difficulty of that. And I had to like tap out. I was, I told my instructor, like, I can't really do this thing right now. Um, and I got really sad and I had to like, to, and it, it, you know, it's like really small things, but it, uh, it's just an indicator that none of us are um, immune for this. And it is, you know, cumulative effects of SAR work. Uh, but it's also the cumulative effect of being part of the avalanche community. Uh, because at some point in time, you'll be the person that either are consoling a friend whose friend might have passed away or consoling yourself because your your friend or loved one passed away. And um, I just thank God for people like Laura McLarty who can now give us more um, uh, tools, like real tools to deal with it and bring us all more aware of that, that it can happen to you too. There's some very powerful story, David. Thank you for sharing them with us and, and how they impacted you um, and for being open, open to that. I think that's a big part of it is like you were saying, Laura is helping us put a vocabulary around these things and being able to recognize them and, and raise awareness around them. And then uh, also empowering us hopefully to share these kinds of stories and, and acknowledge that, yeah, we've been impacted by these things. Uh, it could be these sentinel events. Um, you experience two and pretty short, proxi- pretty close proximity to each other uh, from a time standpoint. And, and certainly uh, this was a very tragic year for avalanche fatalities um, in North America and specifically in the U S we had some very notable events where, rescuers uh, were digging up not just one or two people, but three or four and um, over a course of multiple days. And so those, those events are, you can't unlive them. You can't unsee them. And uh, for those that aren't there, but have a connection to the community, I think you also made the point that you're still connected some way. There's still some connective tissue you're still going to feel that. And, and I think uh, as avalanche educators last year was a hard one. Um, I'll, I'll speak openly about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, come March 1st, I was really having a hard time taking people out into the backcountry and teaching them a, a level one course. Um, and we had some tragic events here in the lower 48 and one specifically here in the Wasatch. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, four members of our community were, uh, their lives changed forever uh, because they perished. And then everybody who was connected to them and everybody who was in that event. So again, being able to discuss these things openly, being able to talk about it is a cultural change to some degree. Uh, I think that it's followed those other cultural changes that our industry has gone through. Um, I mentioned, you know, the idea of like being 
open and collaborative and admitting your mistakes was probably something that was really being concluded to some degree as I entered. And now it's become more of that like commonplace. And I think then maybe what followed that was no professionals starting to become climate activists and like understanding that like we're in this really fragile medium and we need to protect it to some degree. And then we started getting into more of a cultural shift around why do so many of the people that I work with look just like me? Why isn't there a more diverse network of people here? Mm -hmm. And that could be, it could be gender, race, sexual orientation, anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And now we're also, that's still evolving. And we're also now bringing in like um, mental health discussions to it. And I think that, um, that it's, uh, it's going to be a positive trajectory for us to be on. And I think that the sharing of these stories, um, both within our inner circles, but with wider audiences also uh, can be very impactful to that change. Yeah. And um, one of the things that um, I was really thinking about when Laura McGrady was about my, oh, sorry, I'm like my Finnish thing is Laura McGladry was here um, uh, giving the workshop uh, was the whole 333 aspect that, you know, um sometimes when I'm doing star work, it's like it's that incident that day off you're doing stuff, and then um it's really maybe you know three days later somebody should check on you, and then again in three weeks and then in three months and um I had a really um because I like Sean McManamy's wife Caitlin. Um, is also a dear friend of mine. And um, so I pretty much had a chance to connect with her at that little past the three-month mark. And um, she had been the person that I was thinking that got so impacted by this. Um, You know, none of us can imagine what it would be like to be a young widow. None of us want to think of that. And, uh, And she's so full of life and so amazing person. And talking with her about where she was with her grief on, um, you know, a few months later uh, was really helpful for me personally. And I think it was also good for her to just talk about things. So, uh, and um, hail out to Sean, uh, Sean and Caitlin and Sean's family and Caitlin's family. I'm sure you wouldn't mind me bringing this up. Um, but, uh, yeah, just, just keep talking, talk about stuff instead of keep it inside. Or, uh, another thing is of your addictions and coping with alcohol and stuff. That's another thing. Like I, I remember when I was in Wales Ski Patrol and like drinking every day, it's like a thing and it's still probably a thing, but, um, and I'm not saying that it's a necessary, always bad thing. I sure like my beer too, but uh, maybe paying attention to like if people have like unhealthy coping mechanisms and see if the talking might work better. Yes. And that's something that's been at the forefront of my mind for a while now. Uh, I've been an alcoholic my entire career as a professional, and I'm going into my first winter sober. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing how I can adapt to the stressors that we take on because I loved alcohol. 
yeah. it didn't love me. And so moving beyond those previous behaviors that I used as mechanisms to help me survive or get through difficult times, I'm looking for different alternatives. I'm looking at replacing behaviors uh, that were destructive with behaviors that are more beneficial. And I'm spirited to see that um, that's also part of this discussion around uh you know, first responder mental health and wellness of teams is uh, building building habits that still foster camaraderie and foster connection and allow for decompression or debriefing, um, but have some uh, more positive, like mental and physical benefits than the old beer in the locker room or on the on the deck after work. Which don't get me wrong. I will definitely still be there for those sessions. I'll just have a bubbly water instead. But I think that these discussions, as they become more open, people will realize, you know, okay, like I, I, I need to speak up about this. I need to attend to myself. And then we also need to look after each other. I think that uh, looking after each other aspect is, is something we often say we have each other's back, particularly in the line of duty. Um, but it's kind of that mm-hmm. once you punch the clock, do you still have your partner's back? And in many instances we do. And I think that we're also getting new tools to help us uh, live up to that promise. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Sean. Uh, uh, I uh, really respect that. Um, I like just uh, thinking about drinking itself. It's such a, um, commonly used way of just relaxing but knowing when it's too much and it's taking control over your being is a tough place to be so thanks for sharing and good luck I bet it'll be a nice sober winter for you as long as it snows we'll be all right (laughs) (laughs) yeah no I, I mean there are there's a reason why Alaskans are like First, like alcoholism is really high here. All the addictions and suicide rates really high. Because if you come here in November and there is snow, snow, we're all like crying a river here. But um, as soon as the snow is on the ground, we all just get in like a happier place altogether. Yeah. And then we get that kind of collective uh, energy of the community around those events. And and that's what I'm, I'm hoping to like focus towards is like being more mindful of when we're at those those pinnacle moments of excitement of just snow to meter in three days. We're going out on route. We're going out with clients, you know, we're doing all these different things and uh, trying to be more present in those to kind of like let those feelings and those emotions, you know, carry us into, uh, you know, the, the, the less snowy times, let's say. Yeah. Right. No, that's good. Yeah. I like that. I've been thinking about that a lot. Like we're so much better off when we stay present. And um, if you're doing something in order to remove yourself from being present, it's probably the wrong direction of going, but also take a lot of effort to be present all the time. So maybe, you know, get some fitness in that first before you try off to, um, you know, do it in all, all the difficult situations. Yeah. I know we, we often talk about sober October because that's like seemed to be like nice jazzy way to say it, but uh, nobody talks about sober November here. 
yeah. Well, as we uh, as we've remained present here, and our listeners have remained present here for almost this last hour, we we always like to kind of conclude our episodes with um, what our guest is uh, kind of excited about going into the winter. Or, you know, uh, oftentimes we've shared an aha moment or a pinnacle point in their career. And I feel like you've covered that pretty well. So is there anything you want us to know about the upcoming winter that uh, you're working on or anything we can help you with? Lay it on us. Yeah. Hey, thanks. Uh, thanks for the, this uh, opportunity to share. So, you know, I'm like a little bit of a nerd and I, I like science and I love engaging in research projects. and. Um, I I am um, uh, having a fairly large um, uh, longitudinal study going on this winter that I'm recruiting participants for currently, and um, so my uh, the working name for this project is uh, "Where Do You Want to Go: Exploring Backcountry Travelers' Destination Choices." Um, so what it is that what I'm trying to see is uh, one of my biggest uh, research question is that um, how do people decide exactly where they are going to go ski or ride that day? And I'm talking like not just like reading the avalanche forecast or doing the trip planning like you learned on your level one. But when push comes to shove, what are the typical factors that individuals include when they are making their decisions? Uh, of where they're going to go and how does the group come to the decision about it like as a as a process and i'm also kind of curious if um, individual characteristics uh, or traits impact that destination choice at all so um uh what i like to do is so longitudinal study means that it it's a recurring thing so i'd like to find participants that would commit um, to uh, filling out a questionnaire once a week where I'm asking them first, of course, did you go backcountry skiing or riding this week? If no, I'll ask you just why didn't you go? But if you ask yes, uh, answer yes, I'll uh, have six more questions for you about what, where, when, why. And uh, I'm really mostly curious about this why question. Like, why do you go wherever you go? Because backcountry skiing is so amazing that you have all these options to go, right? That's uh, that's the that's the beauty of it. And and we all know that some places are like really attractive because of the terrain, or maybe it always has better snow. And some people, some places are like less attractive because it's like takes hours to get there, or the parking lot is always full. So I'm kind of like gauging these, trying to gauge like what factors are the priorities for people when they're um, going to go out there. And so some of these questions, just example questions I'm going to give you so that you can get like intrigued. I, I'm going to ask you, who did you go with? How many people were in your group? How often do you travel with these partners? That's one of the example questions. Or why did you decide to go where you went? And I have... 16 different um, options to choose from, and you can pick all that apply. And uh, some of these options include, there was no particular reason why I decided to go there. Maybe some of you have been there once or twice. Or easier access than going elsewhere. 
or maybe you were feeling really rowdy that day. So you picked a location that's harder to get to than most locations. Or uh, maybe this was best fit for our time restraint because we only had four hours of time because the babysitter, you had to go babysit at noon. So you had to get this thing done. So we didn't have all these different destiny choices. You're kind of starting to get the gist, but I'm like wanting to see uh, if people can give me like kind of like real-time data uh, for a period of time of how they decided it. And um, so it is a little bit of a commitment, of course, but I'm going to try to make it really easy for my participants. I'd like to get a pretty large sample size. Um, I am... um, promoting this at few of the regional avalanche workshops this year. I'm hoping to get um, participants recruited not only in Alaska, but also um, in Washington state, as well as in Oregon. Um, And uh, wrapping it up back to Finland, um, I'm also trying to get uh, some participants from Finland because my collaborator, uh, in Finland is interested in learning about these same things. So this is really um, uh, kind of uh, putting this decision-making in the con- context of avalanche terrain by looking it at the 30,000-foot level rather than uh, what you read in the avalanche forecast and how you decide your slope-scale decisions or whatnot. Uh, so what do you think, Sean? Worthwhile or what? Yeah, it sounds intriguing, and I'm glad that you brought it up here so our listeners have the chance to kind of look back on the discussions that you will have given by the time this podcast airs, and we'll put some information in the show notes for folks to check out, too, if they want to get involved. Um, Is this going to be um, kind of a just season only? Are you hoping to bring it on beyond this season, and uh, are you open to different modalities of travel? Oh yeah, so it's not it's not about any specific travel mode. I actually would love to get. I'm um, I'm splitting it up non-motorized, motorized. How about that? I don't really care if you are a snowshoer, snowboarder, or skier, but um, I and I I definitely want to get uh, as many users of any travel mode uh, participate. Um, and uh, I'm gonna try this first season first and see what I find, and there might be some follow up. Um, follow up research after that, but I just have to see first uh, what what kind of um, participation I get. But I'm I'm hoping to get some sort of a baseline on why people go where they decide to go because that's super interesting to me. Fantastic. Well, all you listeners out there, you got to make sure to check out the show notes for information on getting involved with Ava's research and being a part of uh, learning more about what we're all doing out there. Sometimes it is all about where you go. So thanks for uh, engaging us in a new project to think about for this year. It'll uh, certainly be interesting to read about your results in the future. Yeah, thanks, Sean. It's been super fun to talk with you today. That's it. That's all, folks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Ava and that it inspired you to get more involved with your local avalanche community wherever you are. If you want to get involved with the avalanche community at large, Consider joining the American Avalanche Association. With three membership levels, there's bound to be one right for you. Support the American Avalanche Association and their mission to support professionals and the community that depends upon their services. Before the end of 2021, 
Every contribution you make will be matched by an anonymous donor. Music for today was provided by Ketza. Find music to inspire your intellectual curiosity at ketza.uk. Artwork was provided by Mike T. Check him out at MikeTEA.com. This episode was produced by Wes Craig and Caleb Merrill. Thanks for making me sound good, you guys. And join us at the beginning of the year, January 1st, for our next interview, hosted by Caleb, with Travis Feist. Until then, keep your tips up and maintain your ability to be surprised. Surprised.